been a week since we began this retreat. It's felt like a very rich and blessed time. How many countless realms have we visited? Seems so much like this journey through the retreat, and yet, as we continue contemplating Dharma, more and more we realize it's not so much that we're going through life, life manifests itself within this heart and in a kaleidoscopic show. The different realms appear that seem so enchanting and terrifying and seductive and boring and exasperating and manifesting and dissolving. Where did all those powerful feelings or convincing states or moods go. They have the nature to arise and cease. And when the Buddha finally woke up to the true nature of things, he realized he wasn't going anywhere. He he finally arrived home. There was a homecoming to where he'd always already been. That as we have been encouraging that this luminous peacefulness is always here and now. Immediate, timeless, inviting us, drawing us deeper, if we're open to the possibility, we continue through our thoughts and opinions to be enchanted by the idea that the only reality is out there in terms of what I can keep and and reject and identify and define and own, then we can continue to overlook the call of our own sacred ground of our own heart. We had a a beautiful Thanksgiving day filled with blessings and a wonderful Dharma talk last night from Jaya reminding us of the the grace and uh, blessing of gratefulness. You know, one of the refuges that we've reflected on is the power of a, a good person, a person of integrity. 
that can encourage us, remind us, truly befriend us. Sangha. And the Buddha was uh, once asked, well, how do we recognize them? You know, you, you might expect flashing lights or psychic powers or awesome deportment. <laughs> Kitty Saw doesn't have that. <laughs> and the first time I, I saw this response, it surprised me. But then when I pondered it, I thought, oh, yes. The Buddha said, a a person of integrity, a truly trustworthy person is grateful. Notice when we're not grateful. Them. It. Stuff. resentful builds a wall there's a separation you know I have to live in a world with all no offense but with all these turkeys I was just I heard at Oxford once a fellow Rhodes Scholar was confiding in me I said, uh, sorry, because uh, there's some nice turkeys on this land. (laughs) All these turkeys. I I suppose that was meant to be a criticism, but notice what what that does. It reinforces a sense of independence. Me. Let's just check out this independence. I don't need anything. Do you need to breathe? Nah. (laughs) See how that's going. I'm not breathing. I am independent. What's that uncomfortable feeling? Who's doing that to me? Got it. Getting more uncomfortable. What the? (sighs) Take that in-breath and the grace the blessing to every cell. We're in this ocean of, especially here at Spirit Rock, blessed prana. You breathe it in. Whoa. You can breathe out anytime you want to. There's no meters. And and these trees breathe it in. Why grateful is so important is when we are grateful, we are aware of what is nourishing us. So the sense of self is porous. There's a recognition that breath and food and friends and teachings and even, sometimes it takes a while, but even the challenges and difficulties and really hard stuff, we realize, whoa, as Tanisha, um, Jaya was mentioning last night, give us this opportunity, forces sometimes to... to bring forth something we didn't know we had.
gratitude. Gratefulness. Grateful, appreciating what is nourishing us. This morning we had the lovely metta meditation from uh, Jeannie. Notice again, it's moving beyond these boundaries. You know, just what I like, my loved ones, my friends. Well, it's something at least to move beyond me. At least you have someone else in there. But metta, this learning to stretch and open beyond these separations. There's some words that Albert Einstein wrote, and I, I know we're laughing. Rather, you should know that I checked this from the Princeton University Press new quotable Einstein. Because there was so much, there was part of this passage that was, was once misrepresented on the net, and this, uh, a lot of things, as we've been laughing, are attributed to Einstein that really weren't. But this, this was, uh, someone checked it out and put the, uh, they found a letter that was written to Einstein from a distraught father that he had met at the World Jewish Congress. And this distraught father had lost his young son And um, he was feeling this incredible loss and separation from the beloved. And he, he asked uh, Einstein for some, how do I deal with this? For some comforting words. And, and this is what, uh, and the letter that Einstein wrote back to him. A human being is a part of the whole, called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish it, but to try to overcome it is the way to reach the attainable measure of peace of mind. For a great scientist, he sure had a lot of wisdom, too, about... the deeper issues of the matter of the heart. This human being, we are part of the whole by us called the universe, but this 
sense of humanity seems limited in time and in space and experiencing ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest. A kind of optical delusion of consciousness. The striving to free oneself from this delusion is the one issue of true religion. Not to nourish it, but to try to overcome it. This is the way to to peace. In this separative consciousness, we've been reflecting on a lot. That's nourished by not contemplating our thoughts, just believing the, the grammar of language as, as being the reality of me and you and here and there and this and that. Contracting our whole sense of being around forms, feeling tones, pleasure and pain, moods, possessions, circumstances. As the Buddha would say, taking a bubble to be the whole ocean. But as we've pausing, connecting, reflecting, we notice that what we're taking to be me and mine, we start to notice it's shifting and changing, not solid, all these so powerful states and moods, just like the sound of my voice, are there and then they're gone. There are no footprints in the sky. It seems so solid, but then it's gone. We start to notice the heart, the heart she reveals herself to us. This ground. And the investigation, the wisdom, we start to see the changing, unreliable, insubstantial nature of what, what we take to be me and mine. We, 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 it leads to a recognition of how futile it is to grasp because it's just, as Ajahn Chah would say, it's like boxing a tree. You're not going to win. It's like standing by a river and shouting at it. Why are you flowing that way? You should flow the other way. <laughs> or his, one of his most famous ones, he said, it's like uh, going up to a duck and say, why aren't you a chicken? <laughs> quack, quack, quack is okay, but just think, cuck You could wake beings up. Think of the good karma. (laughs) Wanting things to be the way they aren't is a, as Ajahn Chah would say, looking for certainty in that which is uncertain, we're bound to suffer. So wisdom reveals this, this ground. But sometimes we, we touch peace and then there's still a sense of, well, sufferings from all this stuff. I just uh, better to lay off stuff. 
and we don't really want contact and, and then our peace, if we're not careful, can become so precious and so fragile that we're just not wanting contact. There's still a version there that hasn't been acknowledged. There's still patterns that haven't really been recognized and purified. That's why there's this kindness and compassion. Notice wisdom dissolves the walls that separate me from you. As we notice the thoughts, the great architect of separation is the manovinyana, the thinking mind. We start to see how it's empty, ephemeral, start to dwell with the mind not distorted by wrong understanding of concepts, then we recognize this unity. Kindness is the same. Gratefulness is the same. Opening to and recognizing the essential kinship with, we're we're part of this fabric, this mutually nourishing, interwoven, undivided tapestry. I want to underline the importance of this practice in the Buddha's teachings of metta, loving-kindness, friendliness. When the Buddha was talking to his monks, the name for uh, alms mendicant or his monks was called bhikkhu. He said, bhikkhus, if a bhikkhu cultivates loving-kindness for as long as a finger snap, he is called a bhikkhu. He is not destitute of jhana meditation. Jhana means deep meditation. He carries out the master's teaching. He responds to advice and he does not eat the country's alms food in vain. So what should be said of those who make much of it? Wait a minute. Didn't you do that finger snap thing before? That's correct. Isn't that interesting? The Buddha said a finger snap of noticing change. Immeasurable punya, meritorious energy for bringing forth that which is really wished for, of another order, because it it helps dispel the chant, the spell. It, It helps to to reveal the true nature. And the finger snap also for kindness. Just as powerful. It's his way of saying, hey, this don't... Notice when we see change, it creates hairline fractures in the apparent thingness and solidity and separation. It's the beginning then of revealing how all things merge in this ground of awareness. Finger snap of kindness. And our teachers really helped us get a feeling for what is the essence of of this metta. 
our teacher on uh, Ajahn Sumedho really helped us. He said to us, no, no, the essence is not contending. Notice when we're contending, we're putting a wall between us and a feeling tone, a situation, a person, a, a problem. We're wrestling with it. Non-contending, he said, or allowing, opening to, welcoming, making the practice to be well with, to be okay with everything. Everything has its place. He used to say, everything has its place. You're not saying you approve of everything, but you're offering it a place at the table. I'm a slow learner, basically. I didn't come around to metta for quite a while. Uh, I was a forest monk. We'd gone off to Thailand. We were with some of the toughest guys. We were really going for Nibbana, <laughs> leaving behind. And yeah, metta is important, it's, but may I be well, may you be well, may he, she be well, may he be well, may they be well. We thought that's for the old ladies. I came round finally. If one's not careful, there's a lot of unacknowledged aversion, like my war on clocks. Why was that a problem for my samadhi? Because, you know, sounds are a part of life, Kitty Sorrow. You know, so the Buddha talked about that there's, you know, many blessings that come from practicing metta, which uh, we'll be looking at some more tomorrow. But uh, some of the un- one of the unexpected blessings of metta practice, when one practices opening to allowing and welcoming, is it makes concentration much easier to do. Why didn't someone tell me? <laughs> you weren't listening, Kitty Sorrow. Because when you make peace with the sounds, make peace with the pains, not saying you like it, but there it is. You're not fighting it, not throwing it out. It's very, very powerful. Being kind, not having all these currents of trying to get somewhere, concentration, deeper samadhi is much easier. Another unexpected blessing of uh, metta practice is it's protective.
There's a lot of trusting in the protection of walls, alarms, guns, fists. The protective power of kindness. The Buddha said, hatred, one of his famous sayings, hatred is never overcome by hatred. Only by love. This is the eternal law, he said. Hatred is never overcome by hatred. Only by love. This is the eternal law. This love is melts the walls of the mind that pit this against that, me against you. It melts overcomes the apartheid of the heart. We've, we've spent 20, gosh, how long is it? 17 and 5, 23, 24 years in South Africa. And uh, Mr. Mandela's example has been such an inspiration. He, he realized when he was, and he felt some big time resentment when he was, he was a boxer, feisty, fiery, and the injustice, and the oppression, and being put in prison in a place that was ruining his health and his eyes, working in lime mines and stuff. There was some, a lot of reasons for him to get bitter. <clears throat> and then he, he, he had a recognition. He said when he realized, if I don't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'll still be in prison. On the day that he left those walls, he, he, he recognized in that prison, he turned it into a university and he recognized how he was hemmed in, bound, imprisoned by bitterness and hatred. And he recognized that holding on, he said, resentment, when we harbor resentment, he said, resentment, notice that builds a wall, them. <laughs> you. He said, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. And he really tried to practice a mind of love that welcomed the whole people. Tanisha and I had the really good fortune to be in his presence a few times. Uh, once in a huge crowd, once when, when in a maybe huge crowd of many thousand, once in a, 
a crowd of uh, maybe a thousand of him giving a talk in, what was that cathedral? Westminster Palace, and then once in a, in a smaller uh, gathering of a few hundred. But his, his presence was, was very, the, the quality of his, of being gathered in to his love and welcome was, was tangible. When he was uh, speaking in, uh, to many thousands in Trafalgar Square, on the balcony of South Africa House, which used to be the, you know, the emblem of apartheid. The, uh, and uh, not long after he was elected president, when he'd been freed from prison, and first democratically elected president, black president, where everyone could vote, and then he, he went to England to say thank you for all those who'd helped uh, over the years uh, challenge apartheid. And I mean, tens of thousands were there. People were holding up their babies and, and, and he was on this balcony. With this, and uh, it was a glorious day. But he said, I love you all. I wish I had big pockets to take you all back to South Africa. I knew someone uh, who was a like a special forces type guy, uh, really highly trained military white white person who um, you know I guess was was in the whole. South African army doing apartheid, but you know, when Mandela became president, this white guy became one of his bodyguards, who then I later met because he he re- really wanted to learn meditation. He realized he he was all in charge of protection and stuff in the in our area, but he 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 saw the need for meditation. But he told us stories about being Mr. Mandela's, part of Mr. Mandela's security. And during his presidency, there was a time in our province where we were living, KwaZulu-Natal, where a a terrible, another spate of uh, violence flared up and there was a group that was killing the ANC ministers. ANC, African National Congress, is the party of Mr. Mandela. And so there was another... uh, uh, black tribal group that was fighting. And there was some suspicion that some of this uh, violence was uh, stirred up by the old uh, apartheid regime. Who knows? Anyway, people were being killed and it wasn't far from us in a place called Richmond. And um, as the president, Mr. Mandela felt he needed to go. So in their bulletproof car... They, uh, with this security, our friend, they drove to Richmond and the streets were lined because, you know, the presidential, I forget what you call that, kind of yeah, motorcade. They recognized it and it was a tense because there had been a bunch of shootings and there was a lot of hostility and resentment toward the 
well, I think it was UD. I think it was a different group. I- anyway, so they went, and then Mr. Mandela told his guards, I want to get out of the car. And they said, our friend just said, Mr. President, you can't do that. They'll kill you. And our, our, our friend Brett said, Mr. Mandela said, I'm the president of this country. If I can't walk down the streets in my own country with my own people, you might as well shoot me right now. He got out of the car, opened himself. He wasn't hiding behind bulletproof glass. Smiling, being vulnerable, open with the people. And uh, our friend Brett just said the, the, the wave, the tangible wave of people being touched by his trust, by the power of his Trusting that, that there's, we have a kinship. We share something. This is our home. In his autobiography, Mr. Mandela said, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. That's so in harmony with the Dharma. Wisdom realizes I'm not a thing. Our wisdom, when we see the changing nature, we see that all things are not really things. And so all things, thingness, separation disappears. And we recognize that every so-called thing is rooted, has a common source, a common root, rooted in the deathless. Amatogadasabedama, said the Buddha. All things merge in the deathless. That's our, we have, there's a deep kinship we have because we all have the same ground. Nibbana pariyosanasabedama. All things come home into Nibbana. All things are, culminate in Nibbana. Thingness ends in Nibbana. Separation ends in Nibbana. The, as Einstein said, the optical delusion, which is perpetuated by this papancha, this enchantment from our wrong understanding of concepts, 
is penetrated and dissolved by wisdom and melted by compassion. The great sage Nisargadatta said the following, which Tanisha and I love to reflect on frequently. said, wisdom says I'm nothing. Compassion says I'm everything. Between these two banks, the life of the awakened one flows. Wisdom says I'm not a thing. I'm unhappy and we contemplate it and it dissolves. I'm happy and it dissolves. I'm depressed and it dissolves. I'm the body and it's vibrating and shifting and aging and dying. Wisdom says I'm not a thing. As we let go, we we touch into that ground where all things merge. Compassion says I'm everything. Nothing excluded. We are part of this whole cosmos. Between these two banks. They sound separate, but it's one mind that learns to focus, penetrate, relinquish, let go, and embrace the wings of awakening, our wisdom and compassion. Though it took me quite a while to come around. I now realize just how important this kindness and compassion is. Also for these deep-rooted tendencies, our deep-rooted tendencies, you can't just bully them out of the way. One can try. As Sajito, Ajahn Sajito likes to say, he says, Kitty Sorrow, the chitta doesn't like to be bullied. And, you know, willpower is important for perseverance, but if you just try to knock things out, it creates an equal and opposite resistance. That's why hatred never overcomes hatred. Some of our deep-rooted tendencies come again and again and again, and that's why kindness is one of the last perfections that help dissolve these walls of the mind. In the Paramitas, it's the next to last one. Just being able to that self-hatred, that compulsive wanting and not wanting. We all have our patterns that we know. Not you again. (laughs) Kindness means we don't just keep wanting to get rid of all the time in the world. Our dearest, dear friend, Godwin Samararatana, a wonderful, profound person and being who's passed on now, but from Sri Lanka that used to come to South Africa every three years, and we became close friends. He used to always ask us when we were practicing with him, have you hugged your monsters today? (laughs) 
He said, can you be okay with not being okay? Can you learn to bless these states? As Jaya was reminding us, I think it was Jaya, maybe not, I thought you said patience something last night when the Buddha was attacked, he didn't destroy the attackers on the night of his enlightenment, he just said, I know you. They had their place, he could be friendly. He had many conversations with Mara, the tempter. And this aversion, this wanting to get rid of, creates a wall in the heart and then we become a refugee from the sacred ground, our own sacred ground. Kindness, this allowing, is very, very powerful. Many of you might have heard this story before, but it's the archetypal way of the transformative power of kindness that comes back to me from, from my own life. And when I was a monk, I used to be a prison chaplain in uh, England. And I visited the Exeter prison the, the, and another prison called Laverne. I can't remember the island it's on now. Uh, huh? In, yeah, uh, but then once I was invited to, a, at the time, a high security prison. I hadn't been before down in Dartmoor uh, prison. There were some prisoners who had never been allowed to meet in a group. They were all kept apart, but they wanted to learn about meditation. And um, already in the country, there was a realization that uh, the prison authorities need to, to make accommodation for, uh, for Buddhists or those interested in meditation and things like that. So uh, I, um, it was getting near the full moon of May and uh, the, near the celebration of the Buddha's birth, awakening and passing away. And so the prisoners got permission to meet a monk. So I was a monk. And so... Uh, I, I went there on a gray day and the gray walls and the barbed wire and the, what seemed to be stony face guards and I was in my shaved head and my ochre robes and in my imposing five foot six inch uh, uh, <laughs> demeanor. I was uh, let in and taken through here and there and doors closing and all this stuff. And then we, we ended up in a uh, classroom that wasn't particularly inspiring. Um, but uh, there it was. And there was about a, a dozen prisoners. And I, I think they had cleared a space and that we were sitting on the floor. Um, and uh, we weren't in there long. And then the guards, that they, they had guards on the door inside the prison outside the door that started heckling us. And the guards uh, thought I was Hare Krishna. So they were going, Hare, Hare, how's Larry? Have you seen Barry? I don't know. What about Mary? <laughs> uh, they were going on like that. Um, and um, which w- was creating, you know, because this was a special occasion. It was the first time these guys were allowed to meet in a group. And, you know, this was their special guest, me. And uh, 
we were being made, made fun of, and they were, they were getting some tension in the room. And I thought we could have an, an incident, so I'm thinking, what to do? And, you know, by then I was thinking, meta. <laughs> and I said, um, uh, maybe we should do some meta practice, loving-kindness practice, uh, uh, and compassion practice. And, and the guy sitting to my left, and I, was he to my left or my right? <laughs> now I can't remember. But he, his name Arthur, and he, he told us that he was in for killing someone. And he says, I don't have any kindness. If I had the chance, I'd break his neck again. So I thought, this is swinging along. (laughs) You know, so there was a bit of panic because there was heckling. Arthur said he'd break his neck again. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm in this group, and but I rallied. And I just said, no, metta means we're not You're not pretending anything. We're not pretending to like what those guys are doing, heckling. But we're not going to fight the heckling. Arthur, when you say you, you, you don't have to pretend you have kindness or compassion, that conviction that you don't have any kindness, you just allow that. We're practicing now just not fighting things. Sounds, feeling tones, opinions about yourself or about others. We're just, uh, whatever's happening right now, open to that for a moment. Open to that, breathe with that. The heckling, the feelings inside, the feelings outside. We were practicing, practicing just being with, allowing, opening to and welcoming. And a meltdown happened. A beautiful, beautiful power of kindness meltdown. Arthur started crying. There was a glow in our room of, as we were, as the walls of our views and opinions and thoughts and contention were were dissolving, the heckling subsided. And we got wider and wider and wider and wider. And that was a divine abiding. We were not imprisoned. We were not in prison. It was the liberation of heart through kindness. I don't know if it touched the guards or but it touched us. And Arthur afterwards started laughing. He said, it's all just a lot of dukkha. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it really just showed me, it's a profound practice. And it goes with wisdom. 
seeing into the emptiness, letting go, and welcoming. It's very, very, very profound. Our teacher said the most compassionate thing you can do for another person is not to fix them with your thoughts. We put them in a box, then they can't grow. We put ourselves in a box. Kindness melts, melts all the categories. And when the categories melt, the mystery opens up. because this world is mysterious. The Buddha said this dharma, this reality, cannot be described. Words fall silent before it. Finishing with a few words from our dear beloved teacher Ajahn Chah, talking about the mystery. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.